Now, we're not going to read through the passage first like we normally do. It's a little lengthy, so what I'm going to do instead is we're just going to read through it together and discover it together as uh, we go through it. So you can keep your Bibles open. Mark 9, chapters 14 through 29. Um, For Ruth and I, um, one of our goals in raising our kids was to help them to be aware of their emotions. We wanted them to know what they were feeling so, um, and to be able to communicate why they were feeling that. And so if they were running around a lot and laughing, we would tell them, you're really happy or you're excited. If they were crying about something, we would tell them that they were sad. If they were upset because they didn't get their way about something, we let them know that they feel frustrated. Um, And one of the reasons we did this was so that they could tell us, like I said, what they were feeling and why they were feeling that way. And the hope was, you know, instead of just yelling at us all the time, they'd be able to tell us that. That was the hope. Um, It worked well for one child. It kind of worked for the other. We got this idea from... uh, from Daniel Tiger and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, There was one song that was particularly useful for us. It was about having two emotions at the same time. Um, And it was useful because feeling more than one emotion can be very confusing for a child and knowing what's going on and being able to express that. Um, The song was called, Sometimes You Have Two Feelings at the Same Time. And the chorus of the song goes like this. Sometimes you feel two things at the same time, and that's okay. Sometimes you feel two things at the same time, and that's okay. Sometimes you can say that you feel two ways. And this particular song and lesson was helpful for my children, um, especially after we would visit family, after we visit grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. On the drive home, they would tell us, with big smile, how happy they were because they got to play with their family, and then they'd have, shortly after, a big frown, and they would say, but we're so sad because we're leaving our family. I'm happy and I'm sad. And I would turn around and I would say, you can feel both things at the same time, can't you? And they'd be like, yeah. So I'm thankful for those lessons. In our passage today, we're going to meet a father who has two responses to Jesus when he brings his uh, possessed son to him, and they're confusing because they seem like they're two responses that can't exist at the same time. He has belief and unbelief. He believes, and yet he doubts. How does Jesus respond to someone who believes and doesn't believe? At the same time, is it okay? So that's what we'll be looking at today. So we have uh, we have been exploring some of the more familiar stories in the book of Mark. Um, And our by the time we get to our passage in chapter nine, we've already passed by many of the stories we've gone through in the city in the series. We've seen Jesus as a as the great healer. He's the great provider. He's the one who even the storms and the seas obey. He's the one who commands demons to leave people. He's the one who can raise the dead back to life. 
He's the one who amazes everyone with his teaching and understanding of the scriptures. And here in chapter 9, Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, although there's still many chapters left in the book. In the rest of the book, Jesus is primarily going to be concerned with preparing his disciples for the challenges of what's going to come ahead. The death, burial, the resurrection, and especially for what's going to come after. And so they want to, he wants to prepare them for uh, life and service without him being physically present. Um, and so our story not only occurs, occurs here in Mark, but you'll see it's in Matthew and in Luke as well, although it's not in as, nearly as much detail as it happens here in Mark. So let's look into it. Verse 14. And when they came to the, to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Okay, first of all, what's going on? Who is the they? The they in this passage is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Okay, so what happens immediately before this passage is something that's often referred to as the transfiguration. They had just come down from the mountaintop where they had gotten to experience the glory of Jesus. Um, Yet we saw from that experience that even though Jesus' glory was revealed and God calls him again, once again his son, they, don't, they still don't have a full understanding of what that means. And we get that from Peter specifically, as usual. But probably all the disciples don't really understand, all three of them, what is happening. So they have this mountaintop experience with Jesus, and now they're heading down to the mountain, the mountain into the valley, into the chaos of the world. Okay, so you've heard of the mountaintop experience and having come back to the valley when the, with, where the real uh, life stuff happens. I mean, I think that's where this comes from. But they're, they're at the mountaintop, and they're coming back, and the disciples are in a great crowd, and they're arguing with the scribes. All right, now, if you don't know about the scribes, when you hear the word scribe, it makes you think of primarily clerical work, uh, someone who just records something. But the scribes were the experts in the Mosaic law and the oral and written traditions. They are the ones who interpret the law of Moses. They are the ones who teach the law of Moses. And they are the ones you brought in when someone was accused of breaking the law. Um, if you remember, they are the ones who, uh, in their hearts, whenever the paralytic was lowered from the roof, they're the ones who, in their hearts, um, were accusing Jesus of blaspheming when he declared that the paralytic was forgiven of his sins. Okay, those were the scribes. Um, they were very often around Jesus and uh, accusing him of one thing or another. When Jesus first started expelling demons early, out in the, early on in the book of Mark, they were accusing him of being able to cast out demons by the ruler of demons. All right, so they would put a lot of pressure on, uh, on Jesus. And so what we see here that the disciples who didn't go up with Jesus are arguing with the scribes, that's, just, that's not just a kind of a side note that we should pass over. That's a big deal. The disciples are arguing with these experts in the law without Jesus. 
by themselves. I can't imagine it's going well. So, what would that do to their faith? What would that do to the disciples while Jesus is gone on the mountaintop? And of course, we see there's a great crowd around them, and this has been happening all through the book of Mark. Um, a crowd is growing and growing, is consistently following Jesus wherever he goes. If you'll remember that at first he was teaching in houses, and then they got too full, and then eventually he couldn't even enter cities because of, because of the crowd, and he would teach out in the fields, in the areas that could hold all these people. And then we had the feeding of the 5,000 where we know there's 5,000 men, so it's probably twice that much at least. Um, so thousands and thousands of people are around Jesus, following him everywhere. And so it's not surprising that there's a great crowd here. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we have a great crowd. We have the scribes, and we have the disciples. And the scribes are arguing with the disciples, and the crowd's reaction to seeing Jesus is notable. As soon as they see him, they flock to him to greet him. Jesus is practically a celebrity at this point. They, as soon as they see him, they know who he is, and they flock to him. It says they, uh, they ran up and greeted him, and I think it's a little more gentle probably than what actually happened. They probably swamped him. So that's, the, that's what's going on. That's the setting that is set up for our story. In verse 16, it says, And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? Okay? So Jesus is immediately interested in what the disciples were arguing with these scribes about. And why is that? Because he is interested in the disciples growing in their faith. And here he comes down and sees the scribes, um, I would say, Harassing them, probably. Verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And so Jesus asked the disciples, Why are you arguing with the scribes? And they don't even get a chance to answer. A father comes up, and he responds to that. And he has a son. And the son is being described as possessed by a spirit, which is not an entirely uncommon thing in the book of Mark so far. The spirit seems like this constant resident within the son, and it seizes him sporadically. And so we see when it seizes him, it throws him down. It causes him to foam at the mouth and grind his teeth, and become rigid. And the word for throw down here is, is also used to mean tear or break or dash against the rocks. Okay, so this is a particularly violent seizure that he's experiencing. Um, and we'll see. It's, it sounds, the, the description of what's happening to him sounds like um, a normal seizure. So I can... I would wonder, you know, it's, it's a, just a medical condition and he's not able to fully articulate what's going on because he doesn't have an understanding what, of the body and the mind that we have and maybe he's just experiencing seizures. But we'll see that it's more than just a medical condition. The narrator makes it clear 
that it's a spirit. And later on, we'll see reasons to believe that it's not just medical. And so what's important here is that the father had originally planned to bring his son to the miracle healer he had heard about, to bring his son to Jesus. But Jesus wasn't available to him, so he brought his son to the disciples. He brought his son to uh, option B. Um, and we hear the surprising news that they are unable to cast the demon out. They've been able to cast out demons before. Jesus had given them the authority, chapter 3 and chapter 6 of Mark. They had cast out many demons. But here they couldn't. So what's going on? And the only difference that I can think of right now is that they're arguing with the scribes, and Jesus was not with them when this happened. He was at the mountaintop. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. It seems a little harsh. <laughs> um, first of all, who is Jesus addressing? Okay, and so there's a few options. Maybe he's addressing the father and his son. Is he addressing the disciples, the scribes, the crowd of people? Or maybe he's just addressing humanity in general, or Israel in general. And... Uh, from the text itself, it's not extraordinarily clear, but the only ones who seem to have failed in some capacity so far are the disciples and their failure to heal this boy. And then we get in uh, Matthew's account. Um, he offers a little more clarity in the story where he tells them that they could not heal the boy because of their littleness of faith. All right, so I believe Jesus is addressing his disciples in this rebuke. And uh, we see this rebuke, it has Old Testament roots, we've seen it before, where in the book of Numbers, God um, says something similar to the people of Israel. He says, how long must I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? And so, a similar thing to a faithless people, he says, um, how long? And so, so, Jesus is clearly not pleased with his disciples, um, it's an exclamation used to describe God's attitude towards his people where they're not expressing faith. Okay, sometimes some commentators call it a holy exasperation um, or some commentators call it a prophetic exasperation. Okay, so the problem is their lack of faith. Now, do they have zero faith? Do they have no faith? Okay, I think we've seen before that that's not true. They have some faith. In Mark... Jesus seems to use this kind of expression to say that the disciples are just lacking in their faith. And Matthew calls it little faith. For example, when the disciples are panicking during the storm, y'all remember the, they're in the boat and the storm comes. It's the worst storm that these um, seasoned men have ever seen. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat. And the disciples wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus is upset at them <laughs> for this reaction. He says, why do you have no faith? We know the disciples have some faith, but their faith was lacking. It was in, there it was lacking in the understanding that since Jesus was with them, they did not need to fear the storm. So, something has happened when Jesus left the disciples and went up to the mountain. 
Um, they're not able to do things that they were able to do before in chapter 6. That's all we can get from the text. Their faith seemed to waver in this time that Jesus was away. So Jesus brought the boy, had the boy brought to him. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. It's an interesting question that Jesus asks. Why does Jesus need to know that? Does it help him with the healing? Um, it's probably for the same reason that we get a detailed backstory of the hemorrhaging woman back in chapter 5. It gives us an opportunity to understand what she has gone through, the plight of the one who is suffering, so that we may more fully understand the compassion of Jesus and uh, understand the story about what's going to happen. So we see that this has been going on since childhood. Okay, So the term for childhood can mean um, any age before puberty. It's used for infants and for toddlers um, as well. Um, so if this has been happening from childhood, if they're using that term, it means that the boy is probably older than that now. My guess is he's probably in his teens. So this has been going on since he was very young these seizures, this possession. And when the boy has these seizures, they cast the boy into fire and water. Okay, water is understandable. They're by the Sea of Galilee, and so there's opportunity for him to cast the boy into water there. But fire. Um, Open fires are not as common to us today, but back then, to cook anything you would have to have an open fire. And so in the evenings, there would be open fires and opportunities for this to happen. So every evening, there would be a fire available for the evil spirit to cast him into. Okay? And we can see the strange thing about these seizures is that they seem to aim. They seem to have an intentional purpose. They're not just happening, um, but they seem to cast the boy into fire, into water, for the purpose of destroying him. So we know normal seizures don't do that. Um, and so we know that this is not merely a medical condition, but it is a spirit possessing him and intentionally trying to destroy him. Um, and as a father, I could not imagine this. For years and years, this father would have had to pay extraordinary attention to this child, to this boy, if this was constantly, how is he still alive? How is he still alive? Um, so this has been happening for years, and this is a difficult, difficult life that this father and this son have had. And I think Jesus would have understood this, which makes his next response a little bit confusing to us at first glance. And it says, but, the, the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Okay, so here's what seems to have happened to the father, as I understand the story. So we have seen the Syrophoenician woman. We talked about that in, uh, in our series here, where she has a similar thing. A child possessed by a demon, and she hears about the son of David who's able to heal, um, traveling throughout Galilee, and she pursues him and finds him, and he uh, eventually heals her daughter. She has this faith that Jesus can heal her daughter. She says, Lord, help me. Lord, heal my daughter. Um, and it seems that so did this man as well. He's bringing his son. He's getting his son, and he's bringing his son who experiences these seizures to Jesus, but he isn't able to reach Jesus. He gets his disciples. And his disciples are unable to heal his son, and they're being questioned and doubted by the scribes, and that combined with years of dealing, dealing with this consistent and disastrous spirit um, seems to have cast some doubt on the Father. It seems to have shaken the little faith he had to begin with. And we get this shaken faith in the words he uses here. He doesn't say, Lord, help me, as other people do. He doesn't he doesn't just try to touch Jesus' cloak like the hemorrhaging woman does, believing that if I can just touch his cloak, I can be healed. He says, if you can help me. Um, the circumstances he ran into before he met with Jesus have shaken him. So Jesus offers him this correction. Okay, So when we read this, this shouldn't, we shouldn't read this as Jesus being really sensitive or being, uh, being his, his pride being hurt by this doubt. Like Jesus saying, how dare you? Uh, like he's a Disney villain. Um, we should see this as Jesus offering a correction where he's helping and strengthening the faith of this father and of the disciples, because that's his concern. He wants the disciples to understand what's happening too. Because what's happening to him is, is what's happening to them. And so the man goes, we can see that what Jesus' word does help his father's faith. The, the faith goes from, if you can, to I believe, help my unbelief. I believe and I have doubts. Help my doubts. Has anyone felt like that before? Really? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe. Help my unbelief. So Jesus is not threatening to refuse to heal the son if the man shows any kind of doubt. That's not what's going on. Okay? It's not as if the man has to have this kind of perfect faith in order for Jesus to respond to him. It's the opposite. The man has faith. And he has doubt. How will Jesus respond to him? The man believes even though he has doubt. Um, he believes even though he doesn't understand everything. And as we'll see, that seems to be enough. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit. Okay, deaf wasn't there before. We learned it's a deaf spirit too. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Okay, so we see the response of Jesus to a man who believes and is struggling with doubt. He heals his son, just like he heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, and just like he heals the hemorrhaging woman. Um, the healing of the son is similar to Jairus' daughter, okay? So Jairus' daughter, everyone, by the appearance of everything, it seems like she is dead, and he grabs her by the hand and lifts her up. Um, so he is not dead. It's unclear of whether he actually died or not, but it appears like he was dead. But Jesus lifts him up by his hands, and he is no longer inhabited by the Spirit. His life has changed forever. So how does Jesus respond to this flawed faith of this father? He heals his son. Verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay, so they have this rare opportunity to get away from the crowds to go into a private house. And the disciples use it to ask Jesus, why can't we do what we were able to do before? And Jesus takes this as a teaching opportunity. Um, now, the first thing I want to say about Jesus' response is to acknowledge that some of your translations say just prayer. Some say prayer and fasting. Okay, and so there's a, there's a textual variant there. Most translations understand that, or take this to say it's, it's just prayer. But... If it's whichever one it is, I don't think it changes the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. But I just want to acknowledge that I'm, that's that's why that's there. There is a there is a variant there. Mine says anything. It just says prayer. Um, Jesus' response is a difficult one because we don't have all the information of what transpired between the child and the disciples, or even the disciples and the scribes. What we do know is that the disciples tried to heal the boy. And they failed. And then Jesus said that this kind of thing can only be cast out by prayer. And we know that prayer is the acknowledgement that you are dependent on a higher power. There are problems that you cannot face or overcome on your own, and so you pray. The disciples' authority to cast out demons has always been derivative. All right, They don't cast out demons on their own authority, but it's based on the authority of Christ. It always has been. So, the thing that I have to assume from all of this is that the disciples, maybe because of their conflict with the scribes, maybe because Jesus wasn't there, maybe because they had been doing this for so long, they've become confident in their abilities. Um, but somehow, something has changed where they were not depending on the authority of Christ like they had been before. And so Jesus said, this can only be cast out by prayer. Now, this kind, I don't take that to mean that there's, like, degrees of demons and that uh, this one was particularly difficult and so they couldn't do it. I take this to be a more general saying. This kind, these demons, can only be cast out by prayer. So, 
Jesus is saying that the disciples cannot now or in the future hope to overcome the spiritual conflict on their own accord, but must always depend on the authority of Christ. So this is a lesson that they are going to need, as Jesus will not always be with them as he is now. So what can we learn from this passage? All right, that's the end of our passage. What can we learn from it? Is it a lesson about how to exercise demons? Um, If that's the case, this passage is not particularly applicable to most of us. I don't think a lot of us have had that encounter or that experience. Maybe some of you have. That would be an interesting story. Um, I don't think that's the point of this passage, though. Here's the point that I, here's the message that I think the passage is trying to communicate. As we go and serve the Lord with our imperfect faith, let us always depend on the person of Christ, the one who can do all things. Um, You do not have a perfect faith. I do not have a perfect faith. As uh, if you know me, you might know that. We're like the father in the story. We believe, but we need help in our unbelief. My faith is filled with doubts. It can be shaken. It can be um, tossed about by the circumstances in my life. It's vacillating. It sometimes grows and it sometimes shrinks. But it, it is there. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you have faith even if it is not yet perfected. You have at least that little bit of faith, the size of a mustard seed that can move mountains, like Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I think the point of the story is that this is the kind of faith that the Lord has uh, chosen to use to fulfill His purposes in history. Even though we doubt, if we rely on the Lord and are uh, faithfully obedient to Him, even with those doubts, He uses us in our imperfect faith. So as you live and work and serve the Lord, you can believe that while not everything you want to happen will happen, anything is possible to those who depend on Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for the story of this man, this father, this man who is like everyone else who has come, who came to you, who came to Christ, who was in some sort of desperate condition or need, and he didn't have this perfect faith that we imagine we need to have all the time. He believed, but he had unbelief, he had doubts, and yet you still responded to him and still healed his son. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help that to be an encouragement to each one of us, that we have doubts and we still have faith. Just because we have doubts doesn't mean that we don't have faith and doesn't mean that we can't be obedient to you. There's a lot in this world to make us think, Lord, or to make us not trust the way we should. So God, our 
our hope is, especially as pastors and leaders in this church and as Christians in general, that we would grow and we would be strengthened in our faith, but we know that our faith wavers in that it goes up and it goes down. So help us in the times that we doubt, Lord. Uh, like the Father says, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, help our doubts, Lord. But we're thankful to know, God, that even though we doubt, that you still have given us this faith um, in Christ. So continue to work in each one of us. Help us to be faithfully obedient to you, even, with, even as imperfect as we are. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are still willing to use that imperfect faith. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.